So welcome everyone. <coughs> Can everyone hear me all right? Uh, <coughs> we used to meet regularly in this room many years ago and outgrew it and moved on. But uh, when St. Mark's is closed, it's one of the places that we contact to see if we can come back. So uh, tonight's a talk on the continuation of the theme of the Satipatthana Sutta, and we're on the third foundation. And tonight I'm going to talk about division of the mind through fear. <clears throat> but I want to, as I usually try to do, bring people who have not been a part of all these talks kind of up to speed in a very quick way, if I can. And the theme that seems to be, uh, that I'm able to do that with through tonight's talk is the theme of motion. <clears throat> and I'd just like us to reflect upon uh, the amount of motion, not emotion, but just motion, just movement in our life. Uh, and there are very, it's very obvious where you can see the effects of the tensions in our life and the need for speed in some ways gives us a relief from the tensions of our life and and keeping ourselves distracted from the residue of discomfort that lies waiting for us when we slow down and that's on every level that's on a physical level uh, when you start sitting you certainly notice your body aches and pains don't you and you don't necessarily notice them when you're in movement quite as uh, plainly. And on a psychological level, it's also true uh, that if we can keep ourselves distracted, keep ourselves uh, entertained, keep ourselves, uh, you know, sort of, sort of frenetically looking for the next intense moment, it keeps us from settling with the pain that's just under there, just scratching below the surface, we can often feel a source of pain. It's also true spiritually that there is a way that keeping ourselves in movement keeps us from feeling the truth or seeing the truth. It keeps a slight distortion uh, in our perceptual field. It keeps us from seeing clearly what is in front of our eyes. <clears throat> and it allows us to sustain a kind of fantasy world in which we are moving forward in this world where the next important thing to do is more important than the thing we are doing. And as I often give uh, to those who are new to meditation the assignment to try to do one routine exercise, one routine activity that they do every single day with some deliberate attention not to move from it, like brushing your hair or brushing your teeth or whatever it might be, just to show you how almost impossible it is to do that with complete mind and body, that it just feels like I'm asking the impossible. Yes, I can sit for 30 minutes, which means I can stay physically in the same spot for 30 minutes. But don't ask me to not have my mind move with the day's uh, planning and expectations while I'm brushing my teeth. It just is too much to ask. This is really the hardest thing in, a, uh, in my requests, my homework assignments to beginning students. And I, when I confront the impossible, psychologically, spiritually, or physically, not physically so much, but psychologically. I, li I like to ask, you know, why, why can't I stop? I like to ask questions that bring what it is that I'm doing that keeps me, movement so important in my life. Why, why, what's going on? What is going on here? Why, is it, why does it seem so impossible just to be present in activity? And so this sense of stopping is at the heart of what spirit we do spiritually. We are weaning ourselves from 
motion. That is the spiritual journey. If we don't understand that, we uh, remain very skewed in our practice, in our orientation, in our view of practice. The sense of motion is all-encompassing. And it's a little bit like we have to stay in motion like a cartoon character to be convincing. Now, if, you, if the projector stops, you're not convinced that Bugs Bunny. But as long as the cartoon character stays in play, in movement, they'll convince you that they have some life within that fantasy. And so, too, if we aren't playing forth our own fantasies, if we aren't moving in relationship to a life that seems perpetually in motion itself, we somehow feel arrested in our development or stayed in our, in our on being on top of things. And we like to think of ourselves as sort of not coming to stay anywhere, especially in this culture where our genetic predisposition because of our forefathers who came over here to settle this country, I think has predisposed us to stay in physical motion and movement. Uh, we, we just, uh, we have a kind of restlessness within us that uh, is very hard uh, to settle with. And yet, when we sit in meditation, when we sit in meditation, what we're asking ourselves to do is to stop. We're asking ourselves to sit still. Sitting still is some of the point. The, what it does is we're supposed to do is to provide a context for the mind to stay still in, as well. So it's not just sitting still that's the meditative discipline. It's allowing the mind not to continue to move us, journey us through its expectations of the day and through the numerous thoughts it has about virtually everything. So it's, an, it's a calling back. It's an intentionality to take a seat, to call ourselves back, to see what life is from a point of steady attention rather than from uh, the speed and duration of fantasy, of life lived through thought. Now when I say, I want to just offer an uh, an explanation here of what motion, mental motion is. Mental motion. What is mental movement? It, we certainly get a sense of it when we sit down. The thing is not quiet. It's all over the place. But what is moving? I mean, that's a fair question, isn't it? What is it that's moving when we're sitting down? And is, is anything actually moving? at all? Or are we just investing in the idea of a movement? So perhaps we could say that in, within the context of the meditation, the awareness that sees the movement is not in movement, but that the forms and experiences that we have in meditation are in movement. And one of those forms, expressions, those manifestations is thought. So how is it that it feels as if we leave the present moment and journey somewhere? If not, that we invest in identifying with the thought as it comes by through this awareness and we go into the thought losing our, the context of the present, getting lost in the context of where the thought and the meaning of the thought and the fantasy within the thought takes us. So movement is really investing in the thought, the meaning of the thought, and just moving out in wherever that thought may lead. So we don't actually move as such. We just invest in an idea, in a, in a movie, in an image that is passing or arising within the mind. <clears throat> Now, when we're talking about the foundations of mindfulness, this is all prelude to this, the foundations of mindfulness provide a seat in which we can stop, 
each foundation, as I began to understand them with more detail and more subtlety, what they really are is an opportunity to step out of movement. So let's just look at what I mean by that. The first foundation is the foundation of the body. Now, when you're present in the body or with a physical sensation of the body, like the breath, you have a context for being able to see movement that you didn't have when you had no tether to the present moment. And so the body provides something that is rested, at rest, and everything else is moving in relationship to that which is at rest. The body doesn't move in imagination. The mind moves away from the body. The body never moves away from the mind. So we have a, a place that we can call our attention back to that is always present by calling ourselves back to the physicality of our body. And then we have some perspective of being able to see the motion and movement of the mind as we rest our attention on the body and the mind moves through the body. You see? So that's the first foundation. You can begin to see, okay, so this is an important foundation to have. It allows me to feel as if I have an orientation to life that isn't in constant, uh, it, where I'm not juxtaposing a constant fantasy or expectation or anticipation or fear or desire upon life. It allows me to see what happens when I do cast myself off into desire or fear or aversion and how what really suffers in relationship to that uh, and how I get all tense and tight and stressful and et cetera, et cetera, within that fantasy when I have some place I can stand in perspective of the fantasy. I can't really know what the fantasy does to me if I've been totally embroiled within it. Well, I just had a friend who uh, came back from Asia after spending a couple of years there. And he said, you know, he, did, he didn't understand what this culture does to, didn't understand what this culture does. He didn't understand the nature of the conditioning of this culture until he has come back from being away from it for a couple of years. And it's actually very true for those of you who have, have uh, traveled sufficiently and, and, and for a long enough duration where you can get a sense of another culture and, and you begin, the conditioning of this culture begins to loosen a little bit. You come back and you begin to see the effects of what this conditioning does to you. In exactly the same way, what, that's what the body allows us to do with the mind. Well, if you just stay within the fantasy of the mind, you don't see what the value and limitation is of the mind. You just expect, it's the only truth you know. But when you have a context, a different way of presenting or allowing the steadiness of our attention to, to hold itself within a physical experience rather than a mental one, then you begin to see the power of what the mind has and can do to us. And you have a different kind of respect and a different scrutiny of what the mind is and a different understanding, really, of that. So the body provides that objectivity that is so needed. And so that's the first foundation, and we spent a number of months just saying what I said in that few minutes. <laughs> I'm a little wordy sometimes. The second foundation is equally as important, though more subtle. And each step in these foundations, we come to a more subtle point. So the second step is, how does it provide a sense of resting, a sense of stopping? Because it does. Feelings. Feelings are not emotions. That's a, those emotions are actually states of mind, mental states. But feelings are the conditioned uh, tendencies or the conditioned tones that we have towards an experience. They are, whether we approach them or avoid them or dismiss them, and they have a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral tone associated with every experience that you have. We have conditioned a kind of orientation to experience that the experience now, that that feeling tone accompanies through every experience. So if I like apples, upon contact with, perception with an apple, this feeling tone of liking will arise. 
Now, that's kind of wired in to experience, having a feeling tone conditioned in with it. So we're not going to get out of the feeling tone. But what happens next is where we can uh, arrest the movement. Because the feeling tone doesn't just stop as a pleasant or an unpleasant feeling tone. The mind very quickly embellishes that feeling tone with the memory experiences it has with apples or with a fruit that you like or don't like. And then it evaluates the apple at hand, judging it whether it's a good apple or a bad apple or red delicious or a Fuji or whatever they are. And it then, a feeling tone then starts being accentuated by the elaboration on the original feeling tone. And a story and a narrative comes up on, do I have enough money to purchase this or do I even want it or I have enough apples at home? Suddenly, the context of just being present with this perception is completely lost in terms of the narrative and story we have just played out in terms of this feeling tone. Now that doesn't have to happen. What this sutta is showing us is that we can stay with the feeling of liking it or not liking it, or being neutral to it. It doesn't have to play into the next step in elaboration and narrative of judgment, comparison, you know, affordability, uh, all of that. It doesn't have to provide us a huge context. It can be very simple, very simple. And it isn't as if we need that narrative to know whether we can afford this apple or not. We don't need a lot of elaboration. We think we do, so we continue to elaborate. But more importantly, we elaborate because we like being distracted. We don't want a full-hearted relationship with this object we call apple. We want to know the context. We want to know the circumstances. We want to know the background of apple in our history. We want to have a whole sense of life lived as, in which apple is a part of that life. And that complexity forces motion, a lot of motion, a lot of thinking. And that we supply willingly because, now this is where I bring in the underlining principle. Why is it that the sense of self feeds upon that activity so willingly? Why is it that it encourages that activity with just an endless repetitious thoughts. It's because, it's because the life of the sense of me, the life, the sense of me has its life within thinking. In other words, the sense of self, the image of who we are, is itself a mental process. And if the mental processes are quiet, we're not. I don't mean we're not quiet. I mean we're not in existence. <laughs> we're not here. And if there is noise, then we come to life. Because what, where we get our life is in thinking about ourselves. We are essentially a thought believed. And if we're quiet and without thought, then what are we? Because in that quietude, the mind isn't bringing forth the image of who we are in relationship to this apple. So, for our continuance, we think. And we invest in thinking for our continuation. Now that is something that most people don't understand about the nature of who they are. They don't understand that they're a thought believed. They don't understand that they're an elaboration of sound within the mind and accompanying feelings, emotions, the feelings and emotions within that elaboration. And we take ourselves to be something that we're not because we aren't willing to stop long enough to see what we are. It requires slowing down sufficiently 
to see what we are, but in so doing we lose the sense of the exact, the outline, the exact details of who we are. As we slow down, like the, you know, the, the sound, you know, you don't, it sounds funny, you begin to feel a little funny, you don't feel you have quite the surface tension that you had, quite the distinction in shape and in uh, psychic form, because quiet doesn't allow the rubs that sound, uh, sound does. And so within that kind of more nebulous and more ambiguous sense of me, uh, which is where we can really get a sense of what we are, we like to get noisy again. Because in noise, I'm very, very firmed in my, in my packaging, in my expression, in my details. You see? So quieting actually works against our self-image. Because our self-image is just thoughts about ourselves. And I want to encourage you, I don't expect you, necessarily to grasp insightfully and in realization all this that I'm talking to you about, anatta, no self. That isn't what I'm expecting of you, but I do expect that from time to time you just work even philosophically or conceptually with the idea that you might be nothing more than the noise of your mind a representation of the noise of your mind and to allow yourself to begin to see proportionally how what you feel like in terms of your own self-definition as you become quieter in meditation or otherwise. Just, just begin to see whether that has some effect upon your exact description of you. Now what it does not have an effect upon is your awareness. And in fact, awareness becomes brighter as you become less noisy. But who, what that awareness is, the description of yourself around that awareness does get less as you become less noisy. Does that make sense? As you become quieter, because your definitions are formed from the noise, that's going to become more ambiguous. But as that becomes less sharply focused, the awareness that was held within that image becomes brighter, becomes more, uh, be steps outside of the configuration it was held within, becomes more universally applicable, becomes, doesn't have shape it's just aware. So, and that is the seat of life itself. We assume the seat of life is in the noise we make about it. Because that's where we come from. But the real seat of life is in the quietude where the image has subsided and the awareness is. Now I can stimulate your brain so that you can tell me your memories and your self-descriptions. But I cannot stimulate your brain so that you can be aware because awareness is not seated in the brain. And because of that, we begin to realize that the brain is a covering of that, is a shape of that. It's like a cookie cutter of that awareness. But it isn't a definition of the awareness. It isn't what the awareness actually is. So now we move into the third foundation. The third foundation, which is more subtle than the second. I like to use both my hands, but... <laughs> <laughs> the third foundation is awareness of the mind. Now, how we're the, so the seat now, the seat is no longer from body observing mind or from feeling observing thought and proliferation of thought. It's now from mental states, awareness observing mental states. 
The third foundation is the awareness of the mind itself. And so where is this, where is the stopping within that seat? Again, it's much more subtle. It's that which holds those states of mind. It's that which sees those states of mind, that knows that those states of mind are rising. The cognizance that those states are arising is inherent within the awareness itself. It's a quality of the awareness that sees what it is that, I mean, that's the definition of awareness, really. Right? So it's this, like you can just, if you just quiet, you still know something just happened, right? It's not as if you lose the ability to know that something just happened. And that doesn't require thought as something passes through. But what is it that held that movement? What is it that holds the thought that moves through the vastness? What is it that knows that there's a emotion that's arising in the mind? That physical sation is occurring in the mind? What is it that holds that? It's the awareness. Now this is really at the crux of where spirituality has to go to be accountable to, to its true direction. What most of us do is invest in the forms. In the, oh, where's that going? That's his hand. I know what that's doing. He's just waving about. In the expression, in the details, in the explanation of what occurred. We forget what it is that's holding what just occurred. The seeing that just held what's occurring. It took you to be able to see in order for you to even know and be able to explain in your mind what just occurred. Do you see? That seeing is stopped. That is not in movement. The awareness that sees is not in movement. What passes through the awareness, like this air, is not in movement, but we can walk in and out of the room and be in movement to the air. So too the awareness is not in movement, but all of the states of mind that arise within the mind pass through that awareness. And as we become less attached to the forms of the world, the energy that used to be attached to those forms goes into the awareness itself. There's only two places it can go. It can go into thoughts about the forms, which keeps the forms connected to the sense of me and all of that. Or it can go to the awareness that holds and sees the form and lets it be in quietude. I think that's very interesting, you see. You begin to see that this journey isn't so difficult to understand. And you can see why much of the journey has to do with us seeing the limitation of form. Because if we're invested, highly invested, in what form can do for us, we're losing our true relationship to form because form really doesn't do that much to us or for us. It's transient, it's impermanent, it's in a state of flux, it's in, you can't depend upon it, it's not reliable. A form is here one moment and not the next. The body's well and then it's sick. There's no expression of form that you can count on. And so when you begin to observe from stopping, from arresting a little bit, the limitation of what we have counted on life being, at first it's disappointing, and a little upsetting, but then the energy that was invested in those expressions begins to pull out of it. It begins to extract itself. You do not extract it. You don't pull it out. It's not by force of will, which would just be more thought. Where do you think will's coming from? It's coming from your image of what you need to do. And to be quiet, this does itself. And as it does itself, what happens then is that the room lights up. And it's not just the investment of me and this thing called Apple, but I start noticing the grocery store. I start noticing the, the, the breadth and space of the awareness begins to be much more profound. So I'm trying to give you a very quick orientation 
to these foundations and to show you overall what these effects are. Now as we go into this third foundation, the question I ask or are, am trying to elaborate upon is how is that we lose ourselves within the investment of each of these mental states where we decide that we still want to invest in desire, in aversion, in whatever the mental state is, because we think we're getting something out of it. We think it feeds us in some way. And until we can look at that state of mind from a place of stopping, looking and arrested, arresting ourselves so that we can get a sense of what the advantages and disadvantages of each of these states are, we will just forever be lost in this field of turbulence and motion. And so tonight we're going to look at fear, right? All of us would love perhaps to discharge fear and get rid of it, be free of it, but we don't realize that we are the, we are, we cause the fear. We are the, we are responsible for fear in our life. And until we do, it's just one quality of mind called me trying to get rid of another quality of mind called fear. And the tensions within that brain increase as to how much you would like to get rid of it. If you'd really like to get rid of it, there's a lot of tension in there. So you can already begin to sense that the way to understand fear is not to try to get rid of it, but to welcome a more settled relationship to it that could perhaps show us in more detail what fear is. So we have to look at fear, not the fear of something. Fear is the same, has the same ingredients regardless of where it's attached. If you correct your fear of enclosed places, it's going to come out somewhere else. You're not going to get rid of fear. You just I can decondition you from being afraid of enclosed places, but I can't decondition you from being afraid at all. You have to decondition yourself, not even decondition, you have to understand what fear is in order for fear no longer to have a seat in your psyche. And that requires a different level of intentionality towards fear than just trying to flee it, which is usually what we want to do when fear arises. So this sense of fear really needs to be explored and we have to also understand that culturally part of the culture invests in us being afraid. And uh, in fact the more separate it forces us to be the more you can be assured that fear will accompany that separation. And so there's a, a way, perhaps not deliberate or plotted in way in which the culture that is the economy of the culture is moved through us wanting and desiring creates the fear that many of us have in this culture because what, the wanting and not having the wanting and fearing really go hand in hand doesn't it I want life and fear death I want success and fear failure I want X and fear the opposite. And so it can't incite wanting without also inciting fear. And we don't necessarily see that we are investing in fear when we're investing in desire, but that's exactly what we're doing. I just, I want to make sure I'm not going too fast for... And I just I want to allow this to integrate into your practice. I really encourage not just coming here passively and listening and going out and talking perhaps intellectually about what was said and then forgetting about it on Wednesday morning, but really inviting a way to use our life so that we can we can start extrapolating, start understanding directly for ourselves the messages here, for they hold the kernel of our freedom. And to do so really requires us being willing to stop, us being willing to slow down and stop. 
And when you do, the tsunami wave of what we've carried in our life crashes over us. All of the difficulties, the pain that we have been running from, distracting ourselves from, does, does crest. It does hit us. And we have to be strong enough and courageous enough to be able to deal effectively with all of the, the repressed or suppressed history of our life because that will come, that will fall upon us. But if we are willing to do that from a place of rest, you can be assured that you won't invest more fear into that cresting. If you try to run from it, if you try to be in motion to it, then you can be assured that that motion will be translated into fear and that whatever it is that's befalling you will have the additional tone of fear associated with it as well. In fact, most emotions are not just felt as uh, most uncomfortable emotions, most unpleasant emotion, because even emotions have feeling tones, also have a secondary response of fear to them, which makes them that much more difficult for us to allow and stop. For instance, anger. Many of us don't feel anger. We feel fear. We're afraid of our anger, essentially. So we have two we have a secondary emotion of fear arising with the primary emotion of whatever happens to be occurring. And so we never allow ourselves to really feel the fear that's driving the tension associated with the anger. And we just move, we try to move very quickly from the anger rather than stopping with this anger and just saying, well, okay, let me just feel this thing. And fear, oh, I feel the fear of just be, of what anger means to me. See, we just, we just keep adding another level of aversion to the feeling, the basic feeling tones that were there in the original relationship. Now, this sutta and this third foundation of this sutta just asks us to discern fear. Know when fear is arising, know when it's not. It doesn't ask us to do anything in relationship to it. I love that. It takes away the doing. It makes it very, very simple. Most of us would like to have a lot of elaborative strategies and practices that we could do when fear arises because that keeps us doing something. But when we do something to fear, we don't understand it. We're really trying to get away from it. And getting away from it in any way whatsoever reinforces it. The only way we can, we can eradicate fear is, first of all, not having that as our motivation. That's, so it's so very difficult to talk about it as an eradication. And secondly, is to understand it is to actually understand what fear is. Uh, I was on an uh, enclosed retreat. I was a monk at the time, and I was going to be in this, this enclosed retreat that was uh, it's just a cootie, a little hut on stilts, uh, separated from all these other little huts where other monks were doing their own. It was a small, small room. I never left it for three months. And the first two weeks of those three months, I was in terror. And I, I you know, I know, I knew a lot about fear after those two weeks. And I had learned through just the force of, of its grip on me, what I could and could not do that would encourage it or exaggerate its significance or what I could do that would loosen its grip. And at the end of that, you know, it just became, it was so obvious when you live with that and you're not allowing yourself to move in relationship to it. See, that's the key is if I were somewhere else, I would have just gone to another part of Thailand or wherever and just tried to, it wouldn't have been even consciously trying to get rid of it, but that's what the movement would have been attempting to do. So much of what we do in life is a movement away from fear and we don't even realize that that's the culprit, that that's our intention. 
We're just, we're just trying to get away from it. Did I say 10 after 8? Whoa. I'm on page 1. <laughs> I haven't even gotten to fear, really. Okay. So I'm used to having the clock right in front of me where I can just... So the, uh, I'm just going to move... And then I will, uh, the, the uh, next week I will go into a different part of this talk that I didn't get a chance to next, this week. I'll do it next week. So, um, but if you begin to, one of the ways you can get a sense that fear is activating on, activated in our life and we're, and that it's, that it's there. See, it's very hard to get a sense that we're being driven by fear because we're so used to it. It's so much a part of our psyche all the time. Some of us wake up anxious in the morning, and that's just a given. We just think that, that we have conditioned that emotion to life itself, a kind of anxiety. And it's just kind of the white noise, like the feedback from the sound system here. And you just you kind of live with it, you know, and you just think, well, that's what life is for me. But it isn't what life has to be for you. But first we have to recognize that it's occurring. You have to bring attention and awareness to knowing that it's arising so that we can begin to stop in relationship to it. If we just have it as the background, that background has an effect on our emotion. Although we may not equate it to what we're doing, it's directly affecting what we're doing. And so when we get a sense of this of this fear, you can get a sense of how we compensate for fear or overcompensate for fear all along the way. Right? Like somebody, like if you're very dominant, if you try to, if, you're, if your tendency, if your personality or character sense is to be in, con in domination, then you can realize that there's a fear of a loss of control, that fear is driving that domination. Any kind of exaggerated character trait often is governed by its opposite. A, an assertive person, you know, is often insecure. It's a frightened by that. This isn't to nail everybody so that they are now, you know, they know exactly that they're driven by fear. It's to give and encourage when you see that quality arising in all of us. Say, okay, well, let's, let me feel the fear here. Let me see, let me get a sense of this. Let me get a sense of what's driving this. Let's go back a step here. Go back a step. And this overcompensation that we have, you know, is often because of the sense of being inadequate, the fear that's lingering back in there. And all of our judgments have a fear base to them. All of our uh, projections we're just, our mind is just going out to somebody else, which we, the part of us that we don't like, we're just ascribing to somebody else to get away from it so that we won't have any relationship to it in ourselves, And then we can easily hate somebody else because they're distant to us while we stay safe in our own home environment, never acknowledging what it is that drove me to that kind of hatred. To wake up to this, to wake up to what we do to the world from our own mind, from coding our mind onto the world, by seeing and re-owning and being accountable once again to all of the ways that we have treated the world, but have been really ways that have been self-induced. And then we, through this ownership, you have to be willing to come back into all of that, to have an exact relationship, to be even wanting to understand it once more. The, I want to cover this point before I end, and that is that there's also value to fear. And, I mean, it's, it's, a, um, it's an adaptive quality that we've evolved to having. And uh, so 
the egoic sense of us, the sense of separation, fear is used to protect it. To for protect it. It's a love. It's for love. It's an expression of love for the entity of self. You see, it's a, it's a mechanism to try to protect that entity. And so if you begin to have a different, oh, that's, you don't need it anymore, perhaps. And hopefully you're growing out of the need to have that sense of separate image identity, egoic identity. But it served a purpose. And you can't just trash the whole thing. You have to appreciate the fact that, oh, this fear had a, had a reason for being here. It, had a, it was a protective mechanism. And that invites your heart in so that the understanding is more complete. The other, uh, spiritually, uh, spiritually, when you begin to feel fear in your practice, it's often a good sign that you're moving in a wise direction. Because fear is the movement from certainty to uncertainty. That is, when you're at an edge where you don't know what is coming, when you have a sense of wonder in yourself, you'll often have an accompanying fear of that wonder. Because there's no, there's no uh, security within that wonder. There's no certainty within it. The wonder, the wonder isn't known. So it's not defined in a way that allows the mind to settle. The mind settles with form. It settles with, with definition. It settles with explanation. It settles with the security of knowing something. But in meditation, we're moving to more wonder, more unknown, less certainty. And so fear is going to be an indicator that we are moving in a wise direction because as we approach more wonder, naturally the defense mechanism of fear will arise. So don't let that discourage your meditation practice. And the, the final is, thing is that we have placed an extraordinary... Uh, We've a lot. We've given fear an extraordinary uh, reference for our life. We think, and it does. It warns us of things that we need to consider. It gives us an, a respect for something. Like, if you don't know how to swim, don't dive into that water. You should be afraid of diving into that water, and you don't know how to swim. It it gives you a way to consider what you're about ready to do. Right? So it's, a, it's an inhibitor to doing the reckless. I was actually reading an article where, I think it's the amygdala or some part of the mind, which if, if it can be taken out or something. Anyway, that's the fear center. And that people that don't have that just start doing things that are reckless and often... Uh, foolhardy. But what this doesn't allow, and what we have to understand, is that awareness takes care of that inhibition. As we get quieter, fear becomes less a part of our life. But what, what takes the place of the considerating reference of what we're about to do is clarity. Clarity of the mind, awareness, doesn't, isn't reckless. It's spontaneous, it's creative, but it's not reckless. And it will look at the fragility of the body or what the sense of body needs, and it won't do something that would necessarily hurt it because it genuinely holds itself in its heart. So I wanted to cover that point because people say, well, if I give up fear, there's nothing that's going to catch me here to keep me sort of safe within my own propensity to, to, uh, for self-damage. No, there is. There's a mechanism here. We have just conceded the awareness for the fear. And that's the mind's mechanism for in inhibition. But it, 
there's another one that's more basic in general and natural that we grow into. Okay, all I have a lot more to say on this subject. <laughs> but I've already talked too long. So maybe we can be quiet for a moment or two. So find the foundations within you. Just, let's just do that. Just sit with body for a moment. And as you infuse or invest in body sensation, the mind, the, the motion of the mind will have less compelling, you'll move less with the motion of the mind the more you seat yourself firmly in the body. And of course the mind will say, well, this is boring. Or it'll find a reason not to seat itself in the body because it wants to go back into the mind. Why? Because that's where its life is. The life of I. The life of Walter Mitty. Now go to feeling. Just the expression of pleasant or unpleasant. Perhaps the sound of the heat perhaps isn't very pleasant. But just hold it on the unpleasant. Don't let it move, exaggerate, or say anything in relationship to that unpleasant. Just hold it there as unpleasant. You can see there's a resting point where the narrative has, it doesn't have a way to move outside of it. It doesn't have a way to proliferate. And there's a, there's a natural stopping place here. You can say, oh, I see. This is a foundation. Of course it's a foundation. A foundation of what? A foundation of stillness. A foundation of steadiness. And now we're just going to move a little more subtle to the mind itself. And whatever you're feeling or whatever is going on in the mind, Allow it to be seen. Allow it to be known. Don't invest into any single form. Just allow the whole thing to be spacious enough so that you get a sense of what it is, that the mind is in movement, but that that space is not moving. Okay, good, so, any questions or comments about anything? I'd be happy to, I can't believe how when you, my hands are so much a part of my, <laughs> my delivery, and I had to hold this the whole time, so, you'll get me back next week. <laughs> any comments or anything? Yes. So I let me just uh, it's about is perception based upon the senses? It's not based upon the senses. It's what allows the senses to be seen but it doesn't base itself on the senses any more than the space in this room bases itself on the person that's walking through the room. The space isn't upset by all of us being in the room or if no one is in the room, does, is it? It's the same space, right? Awareness is like that. Awareness is like this untapped space that we have that we keep conceding for the particulars of the form that we're desiring. Right? So we give up that for this. Now when you give up this for that, the space comes back in and that becomes the predominant sense, in fact, but not sense data, but it's a, you can sense awareness 
and you can sense space, but it doesn't come through the senses. Don't listen to me. Join me. <laughs> I'm not here really to, for any other reason but to have us join together in this. And you can get a sense of this. This is, whoa. And it just becomes understandable what we're doing, you see. So much of, the, of Buddhism is not understandable, not in terms of its practicality of where it, because the tie-ins from all of the chanting of separate suttas and all of that, it obscured it. It obscured the common thread through it all, I think. And so we're trying to bring back the common thread. So it's so clear and so simple and so accessible. And it's not just the common thread of Buddhism, it's the common thread of any spiritual journey. You've got to go through the mind, whether you're a Hindu or a Jew. There's, you aren't going to get out of this thing. You've got to go through it. So in some ways, this is whatever tradition we're in, Christian or you, it's a way of understanding what the kingdom of God that, it's a, that is at hand or whatever other metaphor you'd like to use. Other comments? Or? I have a question, uh, kind of a practical question about the homework. Yes. Um, so in my meditation I'm finding I don't know how to move into the out of the samadhi aspect. I'm, I'm working on moving from that into the um, being aware of the, the senses and the things coming in and not reacting to it. But then how do I move into like a contemplative space where I actually think about the homework, like the homework was about um, you know, being with some fear. I'm a little confused about how to move the contemplation aspect of the homework. How, do, how, does, how does contemplation, the contemplative, fit in with what we're talking about in meditation in general? In right? my practice, because right now I'm samadhi and then yeah. working on it. And samadhi is fine. I don't want to take you off of the, what, what is naturally feeling right for you. Uh, but uh, when you're in a more active state, uh, where samadhi, the samadhi connection with your breath or whatever your your connection is isn't there um, then you can just you can bring in and this is really now we're talking about the fourth foundation the fourth foundation is this considerate this this contemplative consideration or awareness right so you begin to say okay let me just fear what is let me let me just sense what fear does to me so you just you're on top of them. You're like a cat at a mouse hole. You said, "I wonder if there's a mouse in there." I'm just going to sit here and see. So then you a car honks its horn and you go, oh, "What was that?" You know, and you see you begin to start. Oh, the mouse just ran. You see, you, so it's not as if you're thinking or elaborating or, uh, you know, or, or making something up in your mind. You're just. You have an intentionality for being able to see a part of your mind that you have been unwilling to see up until that point. And so you kind of make it a highlight for that week. I'm going to try to catch as much fear response in me as I can. You know, to be honest, I can't remember what I wrote for the homework. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a loss. And I <laughs> but <laughs> in any case, it has, it has to do with something that I'm talking about because... <laughs> All of my <laughs> as it comes up, the fear as it comes up. So you get very sensitive to the physiological response of what happens to the body when it is afraid, and oh, I see, and that cues you very quickly into the nature of fear, that you're having a fear response. Sometimes you get cued in because of the reaction you're having, which I was trying to talk about tonight, like the overcompensation or the defensiveness. If there's defensiveness, there must be, you know, where's the fear in this? And you just be quiet with yourself and you'll see the fear behind the defensiveness. 
it's experiential. It's not imaginative, right? So don't take it. Oh, I think there was one. Oh, I think there was fear back there. I just didn't see. No, see if it, see if there is. Go in like a, a detective. Is there fear in this? Well, is there fear when I'm when you're in a reactive state? You know, if somebody says something true, you can measure the truth of what you believe and is proportional to the reaction you have of it. If you have a strong reaction to what is said, you actually believe the message of what's being said. And that's your self-protection against what's being said is the reactivity. Okay, so let me see that. See, I don't like anyone telling me that. I'll listen, that's fine, but I have to make it my own. All right, so let me see, let me just spend this week catching all the physiological responses of fear. Already you're doing something that you never would have done. Fear, up until this point, quite likely was driving us in the opposite direction, to become more defensive, to become more reactive, to flee. So now I'm actually learning how to what? Stop or quiet down in relationship to the very response that speeded me up. So now, you see, because I want to know it. When the, the only way you can understand, we can understand something is to slow down in relationship to it, right? To stop the motion, to stop the thinking about it. Then we can actually make a contact with it, right? And then when we have, then once contact is made, you can begin to understand it. See, so it's like we have gone 200 miles down the wrong road, and we're going. Wow, you know, this is so simple. If somebody had just, you know, if I had just been told this when I was, I could have gone. <laughs> so there was, yes, Lauren. It was um, Steve Armstrong talked about pixels. Pixels? Pixels. Is pixels? Well, he used that. Yeah. To me, it made things all of a sudden. I saw my life, my life as not my life, something just like this. Right. I had this oh, fear. I mean, I just right. Felt it. right. 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 And that, I thought of that song, Is This All There Is? Right. <laughs> right. Right. No, you had an existential crisis yeah. there. Okay. <laughs> right. Yes. That's right. That's right. Right. And then I got a sense that was different. Was it got sense that it was different from what you were talking about just now about awareness? Yes, exactly. Something does come in. Yes. So when you, when you start having a moment of existential crisis in your meditation and you say, "Oh my god, you know, this is this changes everything." Well, it does. In some, when you start noticing impermanence, for instance, you know, it does change everything. It's like, well, I counted on everything being lasting. Now, even though intellectually we knew it wasn't, that's not emotionally how we related to it. But when you start emotionally realizing as well that things are not guaranteed, that changes fundamentally the way our orientation to things. And there can be an existential moment there where you say, is this all what life is about? It's not worth it. It's not worth investing. It's true. It's not worth it. But, but in that moment, nothing else has come in to be supportive. Right? And very quickly, we try to get back our old footing before we allow that the, to what the supportive quality to come in. What is supportive sometimes takes a while for it to show itself and reveal itself as supportive as something that you can count on, even if you can't count on all of the forms rising and falling. It often requires a new definition, a new orientation, a new direction, a new view. I'm talking about the Eightfold Path, you see. A new, a completely different way to live. And it takes some time for us to release ourselves from the old tendency so that we can relay and move in that direction. And when we do, we start feeling the benefits of this new life far greater than the what we call the benefits of the encaptured fantasy life that we live. 
So it's welcoming it and giving it plenty of time and plenty of expression to show us its value. It's a learned taste. Okay? So that's, that's an important, that's important thing. Now, one thing about pixels, and I, I have a sense of what he's talking about. Just remember this. Your mind has the power of, of a microscope. You can go down to a thousand power, and you can see the pixels of life extraordinarily rapidly, and there are many practices that focus in on that. But is that truer than a 50 power lens or a one power lens? You see? Is somehow, do I have to keep it focused at 600 power to see the truth of life? Can't you see impermanence at one power? Do you have to see it at one thousandth power? You see? The thing of it is, we lose, we think, it gets so fascinating, the subtlety of meditation and the power of the mind gets so fascinating and alluring and what it shows us that we, that is not available in normal samadhi levels, that we think that has something more spiritual to say. I don't believe that. I believe, and I've done that, so I'm not talking about it in abstraction, I'm talking about it from actual experience, is that it doesn't have any more to say if we're willing to use our life in the same kind of fascinated focus. What that thing does hold that's valuable is the fascination and the interest that we don't have for the one power. Because we're used to one power. Everything's one power. I don't know. Right? We, we whitewash it. Is this making sense to people? But if we can bring that focus of interest into what we or see in the ordinary, you are on retreat, just as valid as someone who has spent three months cultivating that sense of samadhi. It doesn't give you any more. Everything is seen, no matter what the power scope, it has to be true. The characteristics have to be true everywhere. You see? It can't be just true here and not true. Every, it has to be true at the universe, universal level as well as the pixel level. So there's a lot of entrapments. Some people give away their spiritual orientation because they realize that their life won't allow the pixel level of involvement. They say, well, then it's not really worth practicing. I'll just do it half-heartedly. No. Every realization is, is, you can realize everything at this level of interaction just the way we're doing it. I'm not giving you some elementary school dharma. This is dharma that will take you all the way if you want it to. And you don't have to have experienced anything other than what we're pointing to along the way in order to, for that salvation, you see? So just be very careful of that. And I just, just be very careful. Okay, I have to stop. Thank you all. I've enjoyed it. And uh, we have some announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.